So I'd like to begin by asking a question. And I, I want you to respond. Now, don't shout over each other, but uh, if you feel compelled, you'd like to say something. Um, what comes to mind when you hear this word? Grace. What comes to mind? Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Love. Love. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Hope. Peace. What else? What's that? Undeserved. Undeserved. Anything else? God. God. Anything else? What's that? Saving grace. So, you know, when we when we hear this word, when we see this word, I think for those who are in the faith it invokes all sorts of good things, right? For people who love Jesus, grace is such a gift. All of those characteristics of grace that you shared encompass this wonderful, challenging, unique, special word that God gives to us from his scriptures. Grace is a supremely unique Christian term. I mean, the world uses the word grace in all sorts of ways. But for the believer, this term belongs wholly to God. Because I think it was as John, you said it, God is grace. And so it's this understanding that as we approach the Lord, we approach a God who is supremely gracious and who he is and all that he does. In fact, I don't think that grace is just being a part of God, just like any of the other characteristics of God, like his holiness and his love. His faithfulness. Grace is who he is. And without it, he would not be who he is. The basis of grace is the goodness of God's heart. But before we dive too deep into this thought, I would like to offer this simple definition to the word grace. This uh, comes from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. But he offers a very simple definition. He says this, grace is God's unmerited favor towards those who deserve his wrath. And Steve, I think you said something about unmerited or uh, undeserved. And so when we look at the, the meaning of grace, what you need to understand as a child of God is that everything that God gives you, his, his favor towards you, his love, his drawing close to yourself is not merited by anything that we have done. God does not draw close to us because he sees something in us that he likes. In fact, it's the very opposite. And the, the definition that's on the screen, the, the conclusion of that says his favor towards those who deserve his wrath. 
Because wrapped up in God's grace is His holiness and His sinlessness. And we know that as fallen, as fallen people, we deserve God's punishment. We deserve His judgment because He is a God of justice and righteousness. And yet, this God of justice and righteousness draws close to us and extends to us a gift that can never be repaid, fully undeserving, and it's given to us through His Son. Paul Tripp says this about grace. He says, you need it. You can't live without it, but you can't purchase it and you can't earn it. It only ever comes by means of a gift. And when you receive it, you immediately realize how much you needed it all along. And you wonder how you could have lived so long without it. If you know grace this morning. changes everything. Pastor Louis Giglio says that we don't get grace, but grace gets us. And when it gets us, we're changed. Our affections change. Our thoughts change. Our confidence changes. Our confidence before the Lord. Because as a person that has received a gift that is not based on what I do, but solely on the giver that gives it, I know that as I go before the Lord, I don't go based on anything that I can do, but my standing as his child is confirmed and guaranteed based on what he has provided for me. And so I'm not afraid. I don't have to worry about standing before God and think, does he like me today? Does he love me today? Does he approve of me today? Does he care about me today? Solely based on the grace that he has given, God confirms to all of us that we are His beloved children forever. I bring this up at the outset of my message because it is only because of the grace of God that we can be called His child. We cannot earn favor with Him, nor are we acceptable to God to receive such marvelous grace. Grace is far too often misunderstood. It's misunderstood not just by those outside of the church, but it can be misunderstood by those inside of the church. Because at times, we misunderstand such a good gift that God would lavish upon us. And much like what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? 
And there can be this understanding even in the church of what is called cheap grace. And, and we were at a men's conference Friday night at Clark Summit University. And uh, Dave Dravecki, who was the, the speaker, um, talked about this idea of cheap grace. And he's like, you know, I hear this word cheap grace and there's no such thing called cheap grace because it's not grace if it's cheap. Cheap came, I mean, grace came at a cost, a great cost, a great cost to God. And for us who are the beloved, who belong to Jesus Christ and are fit together into his family and loved by God forever and knowing that our standing before God is not based on our performance. So that means that we can't lose the grace gift. When all of those things are true, when Paul says in Romans 6, should we sin more so that grace could abound more? He says, may it never be Known to us to live that way. May we never be a people that presume upon God's grace and think that we know he will always forgive us so we can do whatever we want so he will forgive us. That is not grace. God's grace seems too good, too far off, unapproachable at times. In fact, to many, God's grace seems to be impossible. I can't tell you how many times I've shared the gospel with people and we talk about the grace gift of Jesus. That God sent his son, the perfect one, to come to the earth and die in our place to pay our penalty. To bear God's wrath for us as our substitute. And that all that God invites us to do is to trust that gift and believe by faith in what Jesus does. And all of that good, wonderful, amazing work of Jesus is applied to our account. We are forgiven. We are reconciled. We are restored. We are fit into his family. We are gifted by the Holy Spirit. And we are given an eternal home with God forever. And all of that is given by faith. And people say to me, that seems too good to be true. You mean I don't have to do anything but believe? Right. Because it ceases to be grace if there's strings attached. If it's based on our performance. If it was based on our performance, I mean, just be honest with yourself. How soon would the relationship end if it was based on how good you are? I know for me, I couldn't stand. It seems too good to be true to receive total forgiveness and acceptance by God only by believing in His Son who paid the penalty for those who stand condemned and guilty. And then there are even some who have received the gift of grace. And they still have a difficult time resting in the knowledge of God's grace. And that might be some of you this morning. You've received the gift of grace. But you're worried if God will change his mind. 
You may have trusted in Jesus, but you're always looking over your shoulder. Wondering if God still loves you and approves of you. And so it's good for us to come to this passage in 2 Samuel 9. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, please do so. Because we're invited into an episode in King David's life where he extended grace to someone that did not deserve it. And this chapter becomes a picture to us about how God works in our lives and what He does on our behalf. David shows grace to a man that did not deserve it. This episode in his life becomes a picture of what Christ has done for us. Chuck Swindoll wrote in his book on David's life, he says, It is my personal opinion that this is the greatest illustration of grace in the Old Testament. It centers on David, the giver of grace. And a man that you will meet in the text named Mephibosheth. Like for me, you know, when I read scripture, I'm like, okay, I get David and Daniel and Abraham. I can pronounce all those words. And then I read a name like Mephibosheth and I'm thinking, how did we get there? Mephibosheth is a name that is kind of etched into my heart because about 25 years ago, I was in a homiletics class in, in Bible college. And if you don't know what homiletics is or the study of homiletics is, it's the study of preaching. And so we're in this homiletics one introduction class and, and the whole class we spent learning how to study the text and prepare the text to present the text in a way of communicating God's heart to God's people. And one of the students, one of my fellow classmates in the class preached on this passage. I don't remember much of what he said, except that in the 20 minute past message that he preached, He said Mephibosheth's name about 25 times, and he said it about 25 different ways. (laughs) And and so after the message, you know, we would all kind of like, I don't know, American Idol kind of thing. Like the the prof would, would then sit there with your manuscript after hearing your message and kind of work through it with you in the class and say, okay, here are the strong points and here are the things that you need to work on. And one of the things that the prof said, and in fact, the professor was here. He, he um, oversaw my ordination here a few years ago. Uh, Mr. Cheney said at that time to my fellow student, he's like, hey, just make sure when you come across these hard names that you know how to pronounce them. And so um, I, when I was thinking about this passage, I had to chuckle in my heart a little bit. But it might do us well in our, in our minds or even a whisper to ourselves to say the name Mephibosheth a few times so that you know how to pronounce it. But as we read the text, I want to give you a heads up. For you to get the most out of this passage this morning, it's going to help you to understand that we are all a type of Mephibosheth. In fact, he represents all of us. This is us in 2 Samuel 9. This is who we are. And so when you hear his story, put yourself in his place. Because apart from David's actions who represent the Lord's on our behalf, we are like Mephibosheth. 
So we are him. All of David's actions represent what God does for us. And, you know, I always want to be careful when I preach God's word not to spiritualize a passage. But this passage in 2 Samuel 9 is preserved forever in an important place in the text, not only to remind us of David's kindness, but also to remind us of God's kindness towards us. It begins in verse 1. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? All of what takes place in chapter 9 is a result of David looking for someone to show kindness to. Specifically, David asks, is there anyone left in the house of Saul? Especially, he says, or he qualifies, is there anyone left because of my relationship with Saul's son, Jonathan? David is in a place of relative security in his life at this point. It's soon going to go off the rails. But 2 Samuel 6, 7, 8, and 9 really become a calm point. Now you might say, it because we didn't look at chapter 8 yet, and if you, you're astute in, in your study of this passage of David's life, you would say, well, why didn't we look at chapter 8? Well, chapter 8 is really a summary statement of, of David reconciling against all of his enemies. Like, and I don't mean reconciling peacefully. I mean, the enemies are gone. David has subdued his enemies. Now he's in Jerusalem on the throne. He's enjoying peace and favor with God. The nation is in a place of security. It was David's heart in chapter 7 to build a house for God. And if you remember that from a few weeks ago, you remember that God said, listen, it's not your job to build me a house. Your son will build a house. But David, I want to tell you something more importantly. David, I'm going to make a promise to you that through you and your line, I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. David is in a place of peace in the, at this point in his life. And so he's at home, I can imagine, kind of thinking through, you know, in this relative time of peace. He's not making war plans, but he's looking around. He's thinking, he's pondering, he's resting, and he's thinking, oh, my friend, Jonathan. Is there anyone left in Saul's house? And so in this place of security, David remembers. He remembers his dear friend, Jonathan, who pledged his loyalty. Jonathan, who provided his protection. Jonathan, who fought for his life. The same Jonathan that belonged to the house of Saul as Saul's son, who was supposed to be the next king. Like if something happened to Saul, Jonathan would be the son that would become king. And yet David and Jonathan had such a relationship that Jonathan knew that David was God's anointed and he did not want to get in the way of that. And he came to David and he pledged his loyalty, even when his dad was acting like a madman, trying to hunt David down and kill him. And, you know, I think about all of what's taking place in chapter 9 under the framework of what we've learned in 1 Samuel. And this idea that David is in this place where he's saying, is there anyone in left in the house of Saul? And if I was king at that time, I would say, you know what, even if there was anyone left in the house of Saul, I would never do anything kind to them. 
Because for David's, for 14 years of David's life, he was on the run. He was hunted down. And yet David remembered the pledge of loyalty. And David remembers his promises. Because in 1 Samuel 24, we read this. And if you remember, this is one of the cave experiences where David came upon Saul. Like David had every chance to end Saul's life two times. And he didn't. And one of these occasions in chapter 24, this is Saul speaking. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul and Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. David had made a promise to Saul that if something were to happen to Saul, and, and in this passage in 20, chapter 24, the light bulb goes off in Saul's life, and he's like, he finally gets it. I'm not going to be king. David's going to be king. God's anointed David. And he says, David, just swear to me, no matter what happens to me, don't punish my family for what I've done. David makes a promise to Saul. Now, the custom at this time, when a king would come to power after another king led, that new king would erase every person that was a part of the family and allegiance of the former king to consolidate power and to make sure he's starting his leadership in a way where he has great support all of the adversaries, potential adversaries of people that had past allegiances would be taken out. But what do we know about David's actions in Saul's life? Well, 1 Samuel ended with Saul falling on his own sword and dying rather than the Philistines taking his life. And if you remember... In chapter 30 and also in chapter 28 of 1 Samuel, God had providentially protected David, who was aligned at that point with Israel's adversaries. Rather than going north to the battle where Saul was going to die, God had providentially turned him around and sent him to the south so that nobody could presume even for a second that David was there when Saul died. And then as 2 Samuel begins, we know that Ishbosheth, what Saul's son, was now king of Israel. David was king of the south, but Ishbosheth was the king to the north because the nation was at a civil war. And David did not get involved in all of the craziness of chapters 3 and 4 of 2 Samuel and all of the jockeying and positioning that people have when there's power at play. David washed his hands from it. David was not acting like the kings of the land who would consolidate power. So David remembered his promise to Saul, but more importantly, David never forgot his friend Jonathan. It was this Jonathan who protected David and made him a promise in 1 Samuel chapter 20. 
If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also. If I do not make it known to you and send you away that you may go in safety and may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? So at this point, like when you look at the text, this promise that Jonathan is making to David saying, I'm going to protect you. I got your back. I'm for you. Everything that he's saying, right, contingents on the idea, if I am still alive. Let me ask you a question in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Is Jonathan still alive? No. But David remembers his friend and he says, you know what? I still have promises to keep with him. David wants to show kindness. The Hebrew word for kindness is the word hesed. It's translated in other places as compassionate or loyal love. At the root of this word hesed is the word that is also translated in the Old Testament for grace. So David is in this moment where he's pondering in this time of peace. Is there anyone left in Saul's household? Why? So that I may show him grace for Jonathan's sake. At this point, David isn't sure if anyone's left in Saul's household. It's been a while. And so in verses two through five, this is what we read. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahab. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm reading chapter 10. Now there was a certain servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Emil and Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker the son of Emil from Lo-Debar. Ziba was likely a senior servant. He was from the house of Saul. He had served during Saul's um, dynasty. Verse 10 of this passage says that Ziba had a large family, 15 sons and 20 servants. He's going to appear in 2 Samuel later. And the reader, if you put everything together, is going to kind of understand that at this point when David calls Ziba to himself... He's not completely honest. And you you begin to question or wonder about his motives in the question that is posed about, is there anyone left in Saul's family? Now, it's possible he remembered a son of Jonathan that he's still alive. But we read later on in 2 Samuel 21, verse 8, that Saul had other surviving children. And Ziba, who was in charge of Saul's household, or at least a a senior servant, would have understood, would have known those connections were still true. And so it's possible that he is posturing himself before David as an ally. And he says, yes, I know a guy. And he picks a guy that, from his perspective, would have no 
no opportunity to take any power from David because he's not quite sure. Maybe as David asking, is there anyone I can show kindness to? And maybe he'll bring this person and maybe off with his head because he's, he's, Ziba's seen it all the time. This is how kings act. They consolidate power. And from verse 3, we see that this son of Jonathan was not going to be a serious threat because in verse 3, we read, All right, he's crippled in both feet. The son who was crippled lived in the city or town. I I think it's more of a town. Lodabar. And in Hebrew, that word or that name means no pasture. So here is this guy named Mephibosheth who was crippled in both feet living in this area, and this area was about 10 miles south of the Sea of Galilee on the eastern side of the Jordan River in a no no way profitable, no way prosperous wilderness town by himself under the umbrella of someone that we're not sure much info about. And so what does David do? He, he sends for him. I want you to see something. It's not specifically jumping out of the text, but I want you to see from David's perspective of what's going on. We learn in verse 3 that this son is crippled in both feet. In verse 4, the king says, as a result of that information... He doesn't ask him how badly. He doesn't ask him any more information about the information that he is crippled. He just says, where is he? David isn't thinking about this man in terms of what was limiting him. He just wants to know where he is. He didn't hear, oh yeah, there's a son and he's crippled and think, oh, I wasn't thinking of that kind of person I wanted to show kindness to. I didn't want to show kindness to someone that was crippled. I wanted someone who looked the part. And so we read in verse 6, his name is Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan. And we were briefly introduced to Mephibosheth, if you remember, in 2 Samuel 4, 4. Now, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. And what happened was, when the report came back that Saul and Jonathan died in battle, the family of Saul and Jonathan were worried. Are they going to come after us? And here is little old five-year-old Mephibosheth at home. And the nurse picks him up in a hurry to run off and flee for safety. And in that, he falls and he becomes lame, crippled in both feet. So imagine with me being Mephibosheth at this point in 2 Samuel 9. Many years have passed. In fact, verse 12 indicates that Mephibosheth has a son named Micah. Many years have passed. 
Here he is living on the outskirts of Israel in some kind of backwoods town named Lodabar. Living out his days. And news comes that the king wants to see you. And out of nowhere, you have an audience with the king of Israel. Chuck Swindoll writes this about this incident. He says, that's the way that grace is. Grace isn't picky. Grace doesn't look for things that have been done that deserve love. Grace operates apart from the response or the ability of the individual. Grace is one-sided. And he goes on and he says, I repeat, grace is God giving himself in full acceptance to someone who does not deserve it and can never earn it and will never be able to repay it. Everything in this text about David showing kindness is set in the backdrop of a man from our perspective is at the lowest of lows. He is not of the family who is king anymore. He is crippled in both feet. He lives in a backwoods place in Israel where there's no prosperous way that he can survive. And it is out of that that David says, bring him to me. And so what do we read in verse 6? Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. If you can imagine, he kind of like threw off his crutches and just fell down prostrating himself before the king. Remember, we are Mephibosheth. Everything about this moment reveals the tension, as you can likely assume, that David may have summoned Mephibosheth for judgment as part of Saul's house. Mephibosheth doesn't know why he's there. David knows why he's there. Mephibosheth doesn't know why he's there. He's thinking, all right, maybe he's just tying up all the loose ends and finally he found me. But as this crippled man bows his head to the king, he hears something far different than judgment. Verse 7, David said to him, do not fear. For I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and will restore you to all the land of your grandfather, Saul. And you shall eat at my table regularly. So what do we read? Well, this king shows abundant grace to this man. King David gives a gift to this man he did not deserve. What does he give him? He gives him his grandfather's land back. That doesn't mean Saul's land as king of Israel, but his personal land. That was his. That was given to Mephibosheth, the homeland of his father, He gives a restored name to Mephibosheth. He's not hiding out in Lodabar anymore. And he gives him a seat at the table of the king. Not just once. 
regularly. As often as David was in Jerusalem and not fighting a war somewhere else, when the dinner bell rang, Mephibosheth was welcome. And David says all of this is rooted in his love for Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. And can you remember, or can you just imagine this man who is crippled, brought before the king, and hearing his father's name said to him? His father, who died in battle, his dad, who he hasn't seen in a very long time. And this kindness that is being given to him is a result of the relationship that David had with him. In verse 8, we read, again, he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Like, isn't that where we are when grace comes into our lives and we, we begin to understand the weight of God's grace and the immensity and the, the gravity of His grace? Like, who are we to receive such kindness and goodness and love? Who are we to presume that we are worthy of receiving anything good? I mean, don't we all in our heart of hearts at times feel like Mephibosheth who says, God, why are you so good to me when I should be treated like a dead dog? Unworthy. Not well enough to receive what you want to give. And what does David say in response? He doesn't say, listen, okay, I get it. You don't want to receive it. I'll just move on and give the gift to someone else. And David is determined in his heart to show grace. This is what he does in verse 9 and following. Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all the people and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. And when you read this passage and all that David is going to do, he's saying, "Okay, I just want you to understand this is how it's going to work. You have your grandfather's land, and I know you're crippled. You can't work it, and you don't have a large household yourself. So." Your grandfather's servant is going to help you in the gift that I'm giving you. And his family and his servants will all take care of the land. And they will bring the produce to the table. And oh, by the way, this table, this produce isn't just for me. It's for you to help you survive. And also you will sit with me as often as you can. And in these verses in, in chapter 9, you read again and again and again this idea that Mephibosheth always had a seat at David's table. 
And the author of 2 Samuel goes so far to say he was treated like one of David's sons. This is all grace. And so as we close, I want you to remember in every sense we are like Mephibosheth. Broken. Our legs may not be crippled, but our hearts are crippled because of sin. And because of that, we lived in the far outreach places where there was no pasture land. We lived in darkness. Unable to sustain ourselves. Unable to care for ourselves. And in that time and place when we thought that nobody was going to reach out and remember who we are, the king comes knocking and he says, is there anyone left? And for us, we know that the king loves us and wants to show and lavish upon us grace upon grace. Not for any other reason than to be gracious to restore us and to provide a seat for us at His table. Beloved, if you are in the faith as a son or a daughter of God, you belong at the table of the King. He loves you. And He wants to have fellowship with you. And He doesn't hold your past as a record of wrongs against you. But He kindly and benevolently invites you to come and to rest and into His presence. That is grace. Amazing grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. Brothers and sisters, the cross of Christ is our display of God's unmerited favor towards us. Jesus did for us what we could never do and in his substitutionary death and resurrection all of our sins are paid for and we are brought into his presence forever to enjoy him it's all a gift of his grace so let's celebrate him for that let's pray